Please stand as you're able for today's New Testament lesson from the book of Acts, chapter 2, verses 1 through 13. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as a fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at this sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished, they asked, Are not these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native tongue? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, and the residents of Mesopotamia, Judea, and Cappadocia, Pontus, and Asia, Phrygia, and Pamphylia, Egypt, and parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, What does this mean? But others sneered and said, They are filled with the new wine. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. You may be seated. Well, again, a happy birthday to each of you and to the church. And as Brentwood United Methodist Church, how wonderful it is that we are a part of this 2,000-year history together of the Spirit's move in the 170 years that we have existed as a body. Uh, It is so special to celebrate with you all in person today, and it's very, very special to be with each of you online as well, as together we, with kindred hearts, continue this series as we think together about the birth of the church. It all started on a day that we call Pentecost, which is one of three Jewish feasts in the history of our Jewish forebears. There was Passover, Pentecost, and the Feast of Tables. Pentecost took place exactly 50 days after Passover, which was the celebration, of course, of the deliverance of Egyptian slaves, uh, of Hebrew slaves from Egypt. Pentecost was originally, first of all, a celebration, an agricultural uh, celebration of the first fruits of the harvest. Though later in the history of Israel, it became a celebration or a commemoration of the giving of the law at Mount Sinai to Moses. It was, as you can imagine, the hope of every Jew worldwide to be in the holy city for this particular holiday, which I think explains the international crowd that made up that day on that Pentecost. And David, you did very well calling out the geographical names. It's hard to find a lay reader on a day like this. You did very well. It also had been 50 days since the resurrection of Jesus, since Easter, the empty tomb. The risen Lord had appeared to his disciples and given them specific instructions not to leave Jerusalem but to wait for the promise of the Father. Or you say, what, what promise? It's in Acts 1.8, if you go back a chapter from what we read, but you, said Jesus, the risen one, you will receive power 
when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, in all Judea, Samaria, and to the utter ends of the earth. I think it's important right from the get-go to note the posture of the disciples prior to Pentecost. What were they doing? They were waiting. I love the writing of Sue Monk Kidd, who hails from Sylvester, Georgia, South Georgia, just to help you out. It's just between Cairo, Moultrie, and Poulon. Now you know what I'm talking about. Sue Monk Kidd is a best-selling author who has written about waiting. And I want to quote an excerpt from her book called When the Heart Waits. I have tended to view waiting as mere passivity, she writes. But when I looked up the word in the dictionary, I found that the words passive and passion come from the same Latin root, pati, which literally means to endure. Waiting, then, is both passive and passionate. It is a vibrant, contemplative word. It means descending into God, descending into self, into the deeper labyrinths of prayer, and it involves listening to disinherited voices within, facing the wounded holes in the soul, the denied and undiscovered, the places one lives falsely. It means struggling with the vision of who you really are in God and molding the courage to live that vision. It comes in waiting. Now, I wish, I wish Luke had said anything but that. It's very hard to wait, isn't it? Waiting entails patience, and patience doesn't come easy, at least for me. It's one of the fruits of the Spirit, which is interesting. There's, there's love, joy, peace. Patience is one of the fruits, and it is an indication that the Spirit of God is living within you. And therefore, it may be that impatience could be a sign that the Spirit has departed from me. I remember something W.H. Auden once said. He said, perhaps there is only one cardinal sin in the world, impatience. Because of impatience, we were driven out of paradise. And because of impatience, we cannot return. It was Michelangelo who said, genius is eternal patience. It took him four years to paint the Sistine Chapel, and apparently it was so strenuous to his body that it ruined his eyesight, patience. It took him two years to sculpt the Pieta, which some of you have seen in the Vatican. I've seen it with my own eyes. Two years. From one stone, he carved, he sculpted the posture, the, the body of Mary holding the dead body of Jesus. It's been said that patience is the art of hoping. Let me put this in Middle Tennessee language. This is the best definition I've ever heard of patience. Patience is the ability to idle your motor when you feel like stripping your gears. Now you know what I'm talking about. They were waiting. And then it's important to notice what they were doing while they were waiting. What were they doing? They were praying. 
Acts 1.14 says they, they were all joined together. They were all connected in fellowship constantly in prayer. That's the prelude to power. That's the posture of Pentecost. One pastor said it like this, when we are too busy to pray, we are too busy to have power. And how true it is. Isaiah 40, 31, they that wait upon the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Waiting. And I love this phrase, all together. They were, they were still connected. Kindred hearts, after all they'd been through, Good Friday, after all the disappointments, after all the headaches and heartache, after all the frustration and betrayal and the sleepless nights, the, the grief and shame, still, still they're hanging on to each other. They're hoping, they're trusting. And while they are praying all together, the fire falls from heaven. And Jesus keeps his promise. They are emboldened to witness They are empowered to share their faith experience of the wonders of God and the presence of Christ in a public way. I want you to notice that the first gift of the Holy Spirit, according to Luke, who wrote the book of Acts as a sequel to his gospel, the first gift of the Spirit is the gift of communication. It's the gift of speech. The Spirit actually enables this tiny band of believers to articulate the gospel to a diverse crowd from the world over in terms that they can understand. There are times even here in Brentwood where we all speak English that I recognize I'm speaking to five generations of people sometimes. Different generations have different ways of seeing the world, different worldviews, different perspectives, and yet sometimes it seems that God may be speaking directly to you or to me through a common voice. That is the gift of the Spirit. I, for one, felt like I heard that voice uh, through Anne-Marie singing this morning. I felt the Spirit through Alden playing, through Shelby praying. I felt the Spirit through the gift of speech that was touching my heart. It's remarkable. I think what's happening in Acts 2 is probably a reversal of something that happened in Genesis 11. You remember the 11th chapter of Genesis, the Tower of Babel story? When the world was young and the dew was still on creation grass, all communities spoke with one language, all the world spoke with one tongue, and people began to migrate east to the plain of Shinar, and when they got to Shinar, they formed a little building committee. And they said to one another, come let us build a city whose tower reaches up into the heavens so that we might make a name for ourselves. And so they put on their hard hats and they poured the foundation and they began construction. After a while, Genesis 11 says, God came down to inspect the project and he was thoroughly displeased. It wasn't the technology, the technology was sound, the materials were solid, But the purpose of creation had become too small so that we might make a name for ourselves. 
When life becomes for me more a monument to myself than a temple to God, it's unsustainable. When your mission, when our mission becomes more self-centered, egocentric, than God-centered, there's trouble. And you remember what happens? A communication gap arises in creation. People begin misunderstanding one another. They can't hear each other anymore. There's misconceptions, and the language becomes incomprehensible and incoherent. And speech became more of a weapon than a tool. Sounds a little bit like postmodernism, doesn't it? Language can be used either to unite or to divide. And as goes the language, so goes the culture. But at Pentecost, the language became one again. And each one hears the gospel in their own dialect. And here's where I want you to notice the crowd's initial response to what happened that day. Initially, their response was unfavorable. They were astonished. The Greek word is ecstasis, which means they were shocked. They were shocked not just by what they heard, but by who they heard. Listen to what they said. Are not all these speaking Galileans? Now, Galileans were deemed in the first century to be proverbially ignorant. They were thought, especially by city folks in Jerusalem, Galileans in the north country were thought to be uncouth, uncivilized, unsophisticated. You would have called them yahoos or yokels or maybe even rednecks, and the crowd mocked them. They said they must be high. They said, you guys have been drinking. And it's the apostle Peter who steps up and said, no, these guys are not drunk as you suppose, for it's just 9 a.m. in the morning. Innuendo being, happy hour starts at five. You might come back then. But the biggest shock to the crowd was the one who was the spokesman for the group. It's Peter. The same guy who seven weeks before couldn't admit any association with Jesus before a servant girl is now on the street corner proclaiming Jesus as Messiah and Lord. And you wonder, what has gotten into Peter? He's found his voice. He's preaching the wonders of God. He's found his nerve. And now he's proclaiming the gospel. It was Mr. Wesley, John Wesley, who said, that kind of preaching is an awakening experience because Peter is not lecturing them on the general principles of ethics. He's not giving them a lecture on personal piety. He's proclaiming the good news of God's love in Christ Jesus. Now think about that sometimes because sometimes I hear preaching as more of a moral reprimand Gospel preaching is not, first of all, that. It's not a good scolding or a spanking of the congregation. It's, it's not declaring what we should do for God. Preaching is declaring what God has done for us in Christ Jesus. It's not good advice, preaching. It's just good news. 
And Peter stands before them. They're shocked that it's Peter. And he does what any preacher would have done. He takes a text that he's been studying. He takes his text from the prophet Joel, and he interprets what's happening in Acts 2. These men are not drunk, as you suppose, for this is a fulfillment of the prophet Joel. And then he recites the text. In the last days, I will pour out my spirit on all flesh. Your sons and daughters will prophesy. Your young people will see visions and your old folk will dream dreams. And get this, and even slaves will preach. And here's the punchline. And then everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. He didn't say a remnant. (laughs) He didn't say some people. He didn't say most people. He said all people, everyone who calls on the name of Jesus will be saved. Now, it's interesting to note that Joel the prophet spoke these words in the 6th century B.C., And he was talking specifically to the exiles in Babylon. But six centuries later, Peter takes this text, and now he's generalizing to speak not just of geographical exiles, but spiritual exiles, people who are exiled by sin, people who are exiled by disease, by addiction, by anger, people who are are exiled by hurt and, and brokenness. In fact, in chapter 2, verse 39, at the conclusion of the sermon, Peter says something similar. The promise of God's salvation is for you, your kids, and all, listen, who are far away. All who are far away, far off. And the rest of Acts will showcase the Holy Spirit reconciling those who are far away. In Acts 3, it's a lame beggar who can't get into the temple. Later on, it's a magician in Samaria, Samaria of all places, far away, who receives the promise of salvation. Later, it's an Ethiopian eunuch in his chariot. Then it's a persecutor of the church on the road to Damascus. Then it's a Gentile Roman soldier in Caesarea, all who are far away, who call on the name of Jesus will be saved. One of my all-time favorite words is the word whosoever. I remember as a boy learning John 3, 16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whosoever believes in him should not perish but have life. Whosoever. And even as a boy of seven or eight, I knew I was whosoever. Even me. The last thing I want you to note about the text is the response after the message, after Simon Peter preached. Luke says that there were many in the crowd who were cut to the heart. I love that phrase. A good sermon is not a club that beats on your will. It's a sword that cuts to the heart. And they were cut to the heart. And they ran to Peter and they said, what must we do? And Peter didn't say, oh, no sweat. It'll all come out in the wash. Don't worry about it. He said, repent. This is the response to Pentecost. Turn around. 
Confess your sins, change your heart, change your mind, repent and be baptized, here it is again, in the name of Jesus for the forgiveness of sins and you will receive the Holy Spirit. But that's not the end of salvation, that's just the beginning. Because after we're initiated into the fold through baptism, there's more. Salvation, according to Acts 2, is not just an event, it's a process. What did they do after baptism? It's in Acts 2.42. And they dedicated themselves to the apostles' teaching, literally to the apostles' memoirs, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Now, that's the fourfold discipline of the early church that still works for us. Scripture, fellowship, sacraments, prayer. Because when the Spirit arrives, when the Spirit comes, the Spirit comes not simply to spruce up our lives, but to clean the whole house, to do an extreme makeover of our lives, transformation. Some of you know the name Annie Dillard, Pulitzer Prize author, who had an interesting quote one day in one of her books that I read about the church. She was raised Presbyterian. She left for a while and came back. This is her quote. Why do people in church seem like cheerful, dense tourists on a package tour of the absolute? Does anyone really have the foggiest idea what sort of power we blithely invoke? Or as I suspect, Does no one believe a word of it? The churches are children playing on the floor with their chemistry sets, mixing up a batch of TNT to kill a Sunday morning. It is madness, she writes, to wear ladies' straw hats and velvet hats to church. We should all be wearing crash helmets. Ushers should issue life preservers. And signal flares, they should lash us to our pews. For the sleeping God may wake someday and take offense, or the waking God may draw us to where we can never return. End of quote. I have one disagreement with Annie Dillard. It's not God who is sleeping. It's us. He that keeps Israel, says the psalmist, neither slumbers nor sleeps. And on the day of Pentecost, this flock woke up and a tiny group, a tiny flock became a megachurch in one breath because they stuck together, they prayed, they worshiped, they studied, And something got a hold of them, and the Spirit showed up, and the church broke out. One last example, final word. A few years ago, I married a couple who had been visiting our church, and I did what I usually do in premarital counseling. I tried to talk them out of it, but they were resolute. And so I decided to ask them why. I asked the young man, why? Why do you think this is the girl for you? And he thought for a minute, and he said, well, 
After I met her, I started brushing my teeth more. I quit hunting and fishing. I combed my hair more than I used to, and my clothes look a lot better. And I thought to myself, something has gotten a hold of him and made him a new man. It's amazing, isn't it, what love can do? I think that's sort of what happens to us when the Spirit gets personal, when faith becomes real, when God's grace is written on your heart. It's not just feelings that change, it's countenance that changes, it's clothing, it's language, it's speech, it's habits, it's behavior, it's heart and soul, and everything begins to change. Because once the Spirit of Christ gets personal, the witness goes viral. And it becomes evident that you have been with Jesus. Something's got a hold of you or someone. It's the Spirit. Good things come to those who wait. May it be so for you, for me, on this Pentecost day, for Christ's sake. Amen.